At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition, a special retrospective edition of WrestleNomics Radio, Video, whatever it may be, where uh, we will discuss a number of retrospective wrestling business topics uh, today, though, with our special guest. Uh, you may know him from many different places, actually. I know him from places such as the DVDVR message board, many famous alumni coming from, from that school. Uh, the internet relay chat, hashtag wrestle, wrestling chat room, uh, from publications like Deadspin and uh, from the dark side of the ring. You definitely know him from Between the Sheets, from his Substack, Babyface V Heel, from Twitter, from Twitter Spaces. He's my significant other's favorite wrestling journalist, and he's one of the most knowledgeable people really in the world when it comes to modern wrestling history. And he is a, a WrestleNomics OG. Joining us today on the program, David Bixon's man. Hello. What's up, Bix? That was quite the intro. Yes. So Thank you. We've uh, you've been doing this this substack for a while now. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm kind of getting getting a preview of it oftentimes in in our, our group DM between UI and another person who shall not be named. And uh, I'm Oh, I wonder who that is. <laughs> and I'm always seeing the, the research that you're doing through all these uh, I don't know, these these resources. Where you're like, you could get access to this too. And I'm like, and I, and I try for a second, but I, I've, I'm never able to figure out just how you're uh, getting access to all the information you are. I'm sure if I exerted enough effort, though, uh, I'd figure it out. But yeah, you're always <laughs> coming up with some really interesting uh, historical archival stuff. And you've been writing a number of articles uh, on your Substack about it. And we're going to talk about at least a few of them today, including WrestleMania, pay-per-view, excuse me, premium live event buys. See, I, I don't mind that, though. I don't like people were complaining long enough that they were still calling them pay-per-views, even if they were yes. technically still on pay-per-view. So it's like eventually they had to come up with a new name. And yeah, I, I think premium live event is fine. I mean, it sounds jargony, but of course it does. Yes. And they have to say it no, no less than, you know, one, once every every five minutes. So, so you know that that is the preferred yeah. nomenclature. Um, but anyway, 
where should we start? Should we start with, uh, what have I got in my notes? The, the pay-per-view buys. You just did one on WrestleMania 3 with the latest you yes. learned on that one. Yeah, well, I had done some stuff before, and then I was just digging around more. So I guess as background, we should talk about one of the things that uh, you know I've been trying to push you to realize you can access is, I mean, some of this is stuff anyone could access. Some is li- like stuff tied to your library card, but you know, database services, you know, LexisNexis, I guess, is one of the more well-known ones. They don't have as much library stuff, but, you know, ProQuest, uh, Gale, OneFile, because they have a lot of archives, especially of old trade magazines and stuff that otherwise is kind of hard to find where you can dig up information. And so, you know, magazines like Variety, Billboard, Broadcasting and Cable, uh, Electronic Media, Multi-Channel News, that kind amusement, of thing. Uh, right? Amusement business, too you know, which covered a lot of arena business stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've been digging through those. Uh, I know our friend Corey Gibson has as well. Mm-hmm. And just finding stuff, you know, trying different keyword searches and all that. And also the uh, ever-growing microfilm archive on archive.org has a lot of good stuff too. So I've been trying to dig through those. Extracting the images from that one is a little tricky, but digging through all that. And yeah, I th- so I guess, okay, so as the background, a few years ago, very early when I had the Substack, I was digging through, so this wasn't in any of those, it was an issue of Channels, which was more of like a, I think, consumer-facing magazine to some degree, but kind of in between. And they had a small feature with a table of what, according to Paul Pagan Associates, were the biggest pay-per-views up to that point in time, at least by gross revenue. And... It was hard to figure out what to do with it because the a lot of the pay-per-view numbers they were giving were higher, but it also had the universe of homes that each pay-per-view was available in. So at worst, it at least gave us some better information to work with to come up with a number of buys for eras or shows where we only had a buy rate percentage. Because like with cable ratings, it's not a percentage of everyone with television. It's a percentage of people with access to the program. Right. And, and so just for, at least, for some background ahead. for people, when I, I, I'm thinking back to the first, you know, the earliest that I had started to hear about pay, pay-per-view business when it, mm. when it came to wrestling, I only ever remember at first hearing about pay-per-view buys or excuse me, pay-per-view buy rate, which yes. correct me if I'm wrong, is just the rate to which, you know, it, it's the rate of customers who could have bought the pay-per-view, who had access to it, who actually bought it, right? So if you have a 1.0 buy rate, that means 1% of the pay-per-view universe purchased the pay-per-view, correct? Yes. And, you know, earlier on, especially, I think in general, it was always this, but it was addressable homes because this is going to seem foreign to younger people, but for a long time, you didn't need a cable box if you were getting cable. Mm-hmm. You only needed a cable box to get encrypted channels. So mainly HBO, Showtime, pay-per-view events, stuff like that. So yeah. it was generally a percentage of homes that had boxes. Yeah, in, in Not my, just a percentage of homes on cable systems that carried the paper. My memory in my area in my childhood is like, I, I got my mom to order some pay-per-views in like 1994 and in order to do it, we had to go down to the local cable company's office, get a little black box, and connect it to our TV. Um, we didn't have premium channels, so maybe we did need it if we were going to have HBO or something like that. But yeah, we had, I think we even had to like put a deposit down on the box 
so that loud. That sounds familiar. Yeah. 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 But go ahead. Um, but yeah, well, the deal was though was that a lot of people, if, especially if they didn't have HBO or whatever, they would just rent the box to get the pay per view, and then return it. And like one of the articles I dug up, nothing I mentioned in this article, but there was one in cable television business that it was about like pay-per-view business and more broadly, but it quoted Basil De- DeVito from what's now WWE talking about how I think it was WrestleMania two had a very low rate of return on the cable boxes and how happy the cable companies were with that. Mm-hmm. I can pull that up if you give me a second, but and we're, yeah, we're... so go ahead. And what we know about the, the pay-per-view business for for major WF events, uh, the early pay-per-view events, is basically stuff that's reported in the Observer at the time, or or retrospectively, and then it's been recorded. What 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 I'm mostly ever referencing, and I think many many other people are, is ProWrestlingHistory.com, uh, you know, a yeah. website that's been around for a very long time that that will list. All these super cards and tournaments, and then for the the events that that were on pay per view, there's a pay per view buy rate listing. That's probably it doesn't say, but it's probably sourced from the Observer. Yeah, I think generally the Observer could also be from Torch and Matt Watch. I mean, when I've seen stuff in other newsletters in that era, if they have a buy rate, it's generally, if not identical to what was in the Observer, then very close. So whether they were taking it from each other or had similar sourcing, or if it was just everyone at accurate sourcing generally i yeah you can assume it's probably the observer but even if they're not all the observer you know they're coming from one of the main wrestling newsletters and that's what i have on the screen here is is the wrestlemania page for pro wrestlinghistory.com that that does show wrestlemania one was shown live on pay-per-view with a 1.1 buy rate yes and finding out exactly what that means has been tricky I mean, there have been, I've seen articles with all sorts of different buy counts, some of which were just ridiculous, like 100,000 when it was only on a few select systems. So I, I need to just dig around and find what the actual universe was and use the and use that 1.1% to get an idea, I think. Because also, yeah, if, if you're going with, you know, 100,000 homes, which one of those old articles I think in channels reported – at a one if at a one point one percent buy rate, that's just impossible because there's no way enough homes would have had that mm-hmm. access to it. But mostly, anybody who's watching WrestleMania who wasn't actually in Madison Square Garden was that was mostly consumed through closed circuit. Correct. Right, correct. Yeah, three hundred ninety-eight thousand uh, tickets sold. Mm-hmm. So, you, do you want to talk through uh, the each one of those WrestleMania pay per views or? So, yeah, I guess let's talk about the WrestleMania 3 thing here mainly. So that was one of the things, if you can actually maybe pull up the older article first to show people, is the the thing that was, it was the one thing that was really confusing when I found the Paul Kagan Associates stuff, which, as I've learned more over time, it seems mainly came from, uh, directly from WWF. But This one? With, sorry, uh, let me go back to What can the, we learn the, about uh, WrestleMania being on? PPV. The, uh, no, 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 the uh, rabbit hole one. Thank you. Yeah, this one. This oh, one. no, the previous one. This yes, is the, the first one. one, yes. I fell down historical yes. PPV by rate rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that one. So the thing that confused me there is that I get up to WrestleMania 3, and I knew, because it's been repeated a lot, because it's one of the figures that's going to be repeated more than others because of what show it is, 
I knew that WrestleMania 3 had allegedly an 8% buy rate for 400,000 buys. But the universe that Paul Kagan Associates had for it, and I think for better or, for, or worse, we can trust the universe figure, made it that that was impossible. It would be 520,000 buys at 8%. But I wasn't really sure what to make of that for a while, you know? Because, you know, with Dave Belzer, for whatever you think about him, has always had very good pay-per-view industry connections. I mean, I've had people who were, you know, executives in wrestling companies tell me that there were times in the past where Dave would get information before them and would end up being really accurate. But I couldn't figure out what that, how that figure fit into anything because just the math didn't work out. So I was just digging around. I think I was doing a search for WrestleMania 30 um, on various things the other day. And I noticed, oh, this Variety article, I think it was the one uh, coming the week after the event, says that they're in 6.5 million homes. And I also see other trade articles that say 6.5 million homes. I'm assuming not 6.5, 6 million. And I was like, oh, that's weird. So, okay, they're confirming this. And then if you look further in the Variety article, I think it shows us what the discrepancy is, which is that it was 4.9 million. No, wait, or was it? No, it was 6.5, right? It was 4.9.1.6. I think I just saw a typo that I had, right? Is it in this article? Or was it, or was it 4.5 and 1.4? Sorry, I, I'm blanking off the top of my head. It should be in, it's definitely in the new article. Uh, yes, okay, sorry, it was 6.5. For some reason, I had a typo that I missed in the old article. Um, yeah, because it says 6.5 as I scroll down more. Anyway, um, so yeah, 6.5 million homes total, all these places are saying. But the Variety article also mentioned that 1.6 million of those were viewers' choice which was the pay-per-view distributor that I guess basically now is in demand. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. 400,000 homes make sense if you're taking 8% out of 5 million, and the number minus the viewer's choice homes is 4.9 million. Close enough. People are, were obviously doing lots of rounding. So I think what happened is that for whatever reason, someone, I don't know if it's WWF, I don't know if elsewhere was only counting the homes that WWF dealt with directly. I mean, excuse me, the homes of cable companies that WWF dealt with directly. And that led to the math being off for most of the past 35 years. So what, what was happening was WF, what was, viewer's choice was kind of a, an, a go-between between WF and some cable companies, whereas in other cases, WF gave the pay-per-view directly to the cable company. Right. In that era, you had a lot of trying to deal directly still. I mean, I think a lot of cable companies didn't even use Viewer's Choice or Request or Cable Video Store or any of those companies, at least in the 80s. So they had to go directly to them. And the only thing I think it, that I can make sense of with this at this point is that for some reason, the number that Dave and maybe others had was just the 4.9 or 5 million or whatever you want to call it got the correct buy rate and not having the viewer's choice number made it so that the buys weren't recounted. So this 8.0 buy rate is mm -hmm. probably the buy rate without viewer's choice. No, I think it's the buy rate. Maybe Dave's estimates were without viewer's choice, but I mean, if he's, he's going by estimates and stuff anyway, so I think you can extrapolate it 
either way. But and by the way, I did email Dave. I haven't heard back. It's as many people know, Dave is just knowing when to you're gonna get a reply from him is very random, so no one should take that as a sign of anything. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you you made, you made but, a, a reply from Juno Mail these days. I don't know if you got a reply from him lately. Sometimes. See, see, see now. Well, okay. So he had emailed me recently from the Dave at WrestlingObserver.com address. So I was like, wait a second. Should I be emailing? Like, should I email both or whatever now? Because obviously, if he's sending it from it, it's not just a forward anymore. He seems to have a and, Gmail account now too. You never oh, know what you're gonna get. What, yeah. <sighs> I think there was one that was set up for him that he never used. Maybe he is using it now. I don't know. He I does have. Try. He does have a Gmail account. And oh uh, wow. And there's the Dave at Wrestling Observer, and then there's the old school Juno account. Yes. As far as I know. But anyway, I, I think that's what happened. So I think, I mean, yeah, if you want to say he was getting an estimate of the non-viewers choice homes, maybe you can't go all the way 8% based on the total. But I'm guessing it was just, you know, some kind of issue on the part of whoever was giving him the numbers that it just wasn't calculating out of the whole and that 8% is more or less accurate, but that 400,000 is undercounted overall. Mm-hmm. And and no, nobody reads this at WF, which people are reading The Observer at this time, probably at WF, Howard Finkel at least, right? Uh, somebody's reading The Observer, and nobody's saying, hey, this number is wrong. Some, somebody tell him he's, he's, he's under-reporting what our real number was. I mean, Dave was communicating directly with the company plenty at the time, so... I wonder if maybe it just even came directly from them to some degree and whoever gave the information just relayed it incorrectly or that it was out of, or maybe even gave, well, no, because if they were giving a percentage, they would have given him the higher one that's in the trades that came directly from them, which is 10.2. So I just think it's, he got the universe info maybe from WWF and they didn't include the viewer's choice. And so we ended up with 400,000. Shall we move on to other that makes sense. Other, other pay-per-view? Um, just trying to think if there's anything as far else as far as this. I mean, I do want to talk for a second, just like, because I mentioned this towards the end of the article that I wrote it. Like, it really is insane and impressive just how well WrestleMania 3 did. Like, the big thing to me that sticks out immediately is, because I don't think anyone really thinks about this, it did significantly better on closed circuit than the first WrestleMania did. Really? Yes. 450,000 tickets sold approximately. Right, you, you compared to three ninety eight in your, in your most recent WrestleMania, year. correct? Yeah, so like, think about that for a second. We always hear about the first WrestleMania being this overwhelming closed circuit success, but WrestleMania three without Mister T and also being widely available on pay per view did significantly better than that. Mm-hmm. So then, if you really start adding everything up, like between live attendance, closed circuit, pay per view, even if you're not extrapolating how many people are watching. Pay-per-view, the pay-per-view at home, you know, as far as how many per household, that's well over a million people watching that show live, the vast majority of which were paying. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's insane. So we're on, on par for 1987. With, yeah. on, par, on par with what a more modern WrestleMania would do, we think, at least in the, in the pre-network era of WrestleMania, oh, it's going to do, and that's worldwide. This, we're probably just talking about the United States, in this case, pertains to WrestleMania 3, right? Yes. Oh, just be United States because like they had international TV deals, I think, for delayed broadcast and maybe some live, but there wasn't really any pay-per-view in Canada at this point. So, yeah. And also, 
WWE also to put the numbers to, into perspective, specifically for WrestleMania three, there was no pay per view or closed circuit availability in the state of Michigan at all. They did that on purpose to make sure that people right. went to the Silver Dome and that they filled the Silver Dome. Yes, but that also means that you know there's still however many people that can watch, and I don't know if everyone you know if they couldn't get to the Silver Dome, they tried to drive because it was like at least like two three hours away to, for the closest closed circuit sites at least from the detroit area so like yeah that's with what's probably their hottest state for business at the time that's one of the reasons wrestlemania 3 is in michigan that like just couldn't get it on pay-per-view or couldn't get closed circuit tickets and the, without and having home, to travel several hours the go home saturday night main event is in detroit also correct yes and sold out joe lewis arena <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, there was, oh, let me see, did I save it? There was like a, um, I don't think I saved it yet. I'd have to get up again. But it was like Michigan Business Journal or something, some article either going right into or coming right out of WrestleMania that was talking about all of the sellouts that they had just done in all sorts of cities throughout Michigan. So like this was the correct move because they were also thinking, well, you know, we, we're super hot in Michigan. You know, we've done great in Ohio. This is still, you know, not that far removed from like a year or two from the big Ohio State Fair crowd they drew. Um, you know, close enough to Toronto that people could drive, you know, less than a year after the CNA Stadium show. So they really had this figured out. And, and to put this against what WrestleMania was doing the very end of the pay-per-view pre-network era so we, we were just saying a minute ago you know one, you know, one million buys it's, it's what it was what wrestlemania would do towards the end of the pay-per-view era worldwide maybe 1.1 million might, might be the peak um but about 70 percent of that is domestic this is all domestic and we're looking at something like 1.2 million something like 1.2 million viewers watching in some sort of monetized right. form right i would say yeah, I would say at least at least pretty fairly a million or a little more as far as just paid, you know, views or whatever you want to call it, paid, paid you know, admissions and virtual admissions or whatever, like between pay-per-view households, closer tickets and Silver Dome tickets. And coincidentally enough, what 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 did uh, the subscriber rate top out at for the W Network in the U.S.? Do you remember? Oh. <sighs> It was in the million range, right? 1.2 million. Yeah. That's what it peaked at. I think 2018 is, is the peak. And it's about 1.2. It is interesting that no matter how hot or cold they've been, that it all, it never goes beyond a certain point. Like, no matter the era. It's, it's, it, I don't know what I make of that. That it's across such a long stretch of time. And, and it's, it's all different mediums, which is kind of what we're talking about here, too. Where between closed circuit, pay-per-view, at all different price points across time. Um, pay-per-view that you have to go through a lot of friction to even get access to in many areas. Like we're talking about the box that people just don't have in their yeah. homes. And then we eventually we get into an era of pay-per-view saturation in the late 90s, early 2000s, where everybody's got a box and everybody can order with a remote pretty easily um, to now, or even by 2014, you got to pay $10 for it and you get it, you get everything uh, per month that way. But there's still some some something of an obstacle at least early in that period where i think you know a, a, adopting the network was a challenge for some people the funny thing was in the first the first wrestlemania on the network 
they still did something like 400 that we can look it up it's it's out there somewhere something like 400,000 buys um for the for WrestleMania 30 in 2014 despite you know people paid 60 bucks for it despite you know you could have had it for $10 if you streamed it um but yeah. that was understandable because the network was brand new mm-hmm. the live streaming tests they had done so to speak in the you know month bef- between the launch and WrestleMania had not gone awesomely overall you know the takeover on the launch week had well no it wasn't takeover technically it was nxt arrival um that had widespread issues where the show went out for everyone um i want to say the stream when they did the live editions of main event because to make sure they had more tests they went better but still had issues and then even during WrestleMania itself, like a lot, I remember I didn't, a lot of people had like degraded picture even when it was working. Now within, I would say a few months, they had everything figured out as far as the streaming quality issues. And I guess what to do as far as like the CDN sending it out and how to have enough backups and all that. But early on, I really don't blame anyone. I just, I've got the numbers here for, yeah, that are actually on WrestleNomics.com. For the first mania, this is the first pay-per-view that the network was cannibalizing. Six hundred well, this is worldwide. And the network wasn't out there worldwide, but six hundred and eighty-four thousand worldwide. But domestically, definitely where you could have had it streaming, uh four hundred and twenty thousand. And even by the following year, WrestleMania thirty-one in two thousand fifteen, still did fifty thousand domestically, hundred and forty-five thousand uh worldwide. Yeah. And then we, we stopped getting numbers sometime in mid-2015. 20, they stopped uh, reporting pay-per-view numbers. And understandably so. And you know, like Because beyond a certain point, once the technology was working and stable, it was mainly people in non-broadband homes or people who were very tech-shy who were buying the regular pay-per-views, one would think. Yeah, I think it's, it's like rural America where the broadband internet access isn't there and for some reason they're still shelling out 60 bucks for, for a pay-per-view. Right. We'd probably have a better idea if we had a cable versus satellite split, like how much of it was that? Because I think if it was overwhelmingly satellite, then it would be pretty obvious that it was a broadband thing, where if it wasn't, then it would be, you know, something where you'd be considering those other factors. But we don't have that, obviously. Yeah. More WrestleMania? Um. I mean, we can talk about some of the attendance stuff real quick, because I've especially kind of I've been seeing that litigated a bunch more again lately which is probably going to keep going in the next several months because we're approaching the 35th anniversary yes. um okay i had done an article for deadspin in 2018 where i just tried to do as much research as possible into the attend into the attendance of wrestlemania 30 like not that i thought 93,173 was real but because there's a debate you know it lives on you know in the wikipedia thing of the dumbest wikipedia edit wars <laughs> All the stuff, people arguing whether or not Dave Meltzer is a legitimate source, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Because for those who don't know, Dave, starting in the mid-90s, although he had he had talked... Okay, so he had talked about it being a worked number earlier, but starting in like the mid-90s, he started saying that actually the show drew... Sometimes he would say 78,000, sometimes about 78,500. Yeah. It was the total. And as time went on, he explained it more, that Zane Bresloff of Awesome Promotions who was the main WWF promoter in the Midwest into the West coast. And also, um, you know, was working for WCW by the time he sent this to Dave, that Dave was just randomly talking with him one day after some 
news story or something on Hulk Hogan. And the attendance for WrestleMania 3 came up, and Dave, I guess, either thought it was real or at least close enough to real still. And Zane was like, you still believe that? Hold on. So he dug around in his archives or whatever and, and immediately faxed the building settlement to Dave. And it showed a total of... I've never really been able... I don't think anyone has been able to get enough out of Dave to understand why it's a round number that doesn't seem like it would be the like actual total. But it was 78,500. But as time went on, people had legitimate questions. Like, okay, obviously there are attendances that are works, but like, would it really... Like, especially with minimal seat kills, you know, thousands of people on the f- field... How do you get less than 80,000 when the football capacity is over 80,000? Mm-hmm. And, you know, as time went on, you know, there were things like um, people would look at the old Silverdome website from when it was still in business. And they it was a slightly different capacity. Like, if I want to say they had removed like 300 seats and renovations, but it was still pretty close. And then it break down my section. And the thing is, like, at the time, that website existed to get rental business. They're not going to be lying about the capacity, you know, just for, you know, people's attendance records or whatever. So, you know, that people had legitimate questions about that. But clearly Dave actually got this paperwork and then, as he's talked about, was able to confirm it with WWE years later because he did a story about their stadium shows um, in the issue covering WrestleMania 17. And they were cooperative and sent him all sorts of internal records, which boy, is that so weird looking back <laughs> um, that they were that cooperative. And when I did the Deadspin story, I did reach out like, hey, I'm doing this article. You know, Meltzer had access to this stuff, 20, you know, 17 years ago. Would you be willing to share the same stuff? Around this is WWE's maybe. communications people that I asked. But, and no but, one replied. But at the time, of course, at, at the time that um, <laughs> that, that Dave was talking to WWE, that, that's 2001 about this issue, yes. correct? Yes, and they sent him stuff from other stadium shows too, like you know, uh, SummerSlam '92, um, you know, CNE, like I said, CNE Stadium, like the Toronto and, uh, show. You that's know, the big, uh, the big, big. That's, that's the big the event. Orndorf, yeah. Orndorf and, and Hogan match. Um, yes, and you know that they were you know showing what they actually were relative to the announced numbers and blah blah blah. So anyway, so I you know when I did this article. I wasn't really sure what my conclusion was, but like one of the things that I noticed was that, um, how do I put this? Like until a couple days before the show, everyone was saying that the capacity was about 88,000. If they sold out, it would be 88,000. That's what the observer said. That's what all the mainstream reports were saying. That's what WWE, you know, well then Titan sports was saying. That's what the Silverdome was saying. Everyone was saying 88,000. Then a couple days out, like, like right before, right after it sold out, you had the well, at least WWF starting to say like ninety two or ninety three thousand, um, but I wasn't really sure what I thought at the time. But then people started to think about it more over time, and that leads to the Substack article from a year or two ago that you were showing earlier. That so well, okay. So the thing that came out of this was that someone, uh, Max Levy, Max Tamale, some people know him from various you know old school wrestling message board and Twitter and stuff. He made a point of, once I found like the very high-resolution photo of the crowd, he made a point of trying to count the floor seats because, you know, that's the best you could do at least. And he came out with about 6,300, which seems reasonable. Later, once I found a good photo of the Pope 
thing too. He counted that and it was in the same range, maybe like 6,500, which is also part of that too. So when the, there was a, the Pope did a mass later in the year and people have said it actually drew a lot better, but it, it couldn't have. They had the, a similar number of people there, but mm-hmm. a lot, you know, people, including Dave Meltzer, seemed to trust the Pope number, which was always announced in the, in the 90,000 range. But people um, were jammed in. Say that again? But people were jammed in, he says, right? Right. He said they were more jammed in, which, if you, right, and once you actually got, and look, I don't think photos in this kind of resolution were around when he said that, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, in fairness to Dave. Excuse me, I have to drink some water. So the but the football capacity, and I remember this yeah. because I have a. Uh, growing up, I had like a, a, a an NFL record book that had all sorts of NFL stats in it, but it it also yeah. had profiles of each team and the stadiums that they played at, and it listed the capacity. And I was always fascinated that like the Bills and the Lions at the time had the, had the largest capacity, and the the Lions Stadium, the Silverdome was um, eighty thousand according to Wikipedia. Uh, the Silverdome, for people who don't know, has been demolished. It was demolished in 2018. But um, according to the Wikipedia page, and, and I think it was widely reported, for what it's worth, uh, 80,311. Um, that so was the would... capacity at the time it closed. Um, it was 8,600-something around WrestleMania three. But and over 80,000. Well, go ahead. But over, over 80,000. And one would yeah, think so... if... You know, we're, we're, if you're going to do a WrestleMania, the way the WrestleMania 3 looked, there's no stage here like there would be today that would kill tens of thousands of, of, of seats. So, right. and then they had, as, as people can see on the screen here, thousands of people on the field. So that would, and if it was really sold out, it looks pretty packed. You've got 80,000 plus something that's at least in excess of 78,500. Um, right. I've, I've discussed this and, a little, little with Dave and, and Dave thinks that, the football capacity number was a work. Right. As, as, That's as, what he's always as capacities, he, he believes the capacities in sports arenas generally were exaggerated. Right, because when he would get settlements from WCW and WWF, they would run shows without stages, and they would do sellouts that, with fans on the floor, would be, I guess, lower than the stated, you know, basketball or whatever capacity. Mm-hmm. So he would always, you know, would say, how would that make sense unless these are numbers or even the capacities are regularly worked, which I get from his perspective, certainly. Um, the thing is, though, at the time, I, I always forget how widespread this was in the NFL in general, but the Detroit Lions had a very specific blackout rule where if an event did not, well, a game, a home game did not sell out, it wasn't going to be shown on TV locally. Yes. Remember that so, one. you know. You know, in the Deadspin article, the thing I cite for that capacity is talk, is an article about blackout rules that gives the Silverdome capacity for football. So you would think that wouldn't be a work. And then, like I was saying, you know, with the modern-ish Silverdome website, circa 2005 or whatever, they're trying to attract rental business. I really don't think it would be a worked number. But the so, thing that so became the, blackout, the key at... The, bla- the blackout, there's reason to believe that, the, that referencing the number of 80,000 some odd for blackout would be would have to be real because why and you mean why wouldn't it just be quote unquote a sellout yeah as opposed to i I get what you're saying but it was like maybe because it was just drilled into people's heads so often locally but also we need to remember it was a publicly owned building too like it would have been trivial at some point to dig into this unfortunately um 
when I, by the time I was doing the article, there had been some kind of financial crisis in Pontiac, and the emergency financial manager who had been appointed took tons of documents with him that he never gave back. Why I don't know, but like, so we're not just talking about like records of like what the Silver Dome actually seeded, though. Too like we're talking about building department records that you would think at least would have like the you know certificate of occupancy of what was legally allowed for fire codes like i couldn't get any of that and like the public records office person was very apologetic like yeah they never gave us back all that stuff so the likelihood of finding record or ideally multiple records that would support the notion that this stadium at least for football or for 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 events that only put people in, in the bowl um the likelihood of finding a record of that is pretty low at this point. Is, I mean, like I've looked. Yeah. I, I think I've searched through the records of the D- Detroit Free Press, which seem to be pre- pretty readily available. And I, yeah. I found a lot of references to, I mean, lines weren't, weren't, weren't drawing well in the 80s, I think. I remember trying to, to look up like in 1986, in 1987, 88, what, what constituted a sellout. Um, but I, th- right. I think I remember finding some, some mentions of, of 80,000 still for what it's worth. But if, if that number is a work and everybody's operating under the assumption that, that it's 80,000, correctly or incorrectly, that doesn't really change the facts. Right. But um, what was I saying with that? The other avenue I had tried, and which wasn't back at the time of the Deadspin article, but was later, was that I found an article in the Detroit Free Press about how the Secret Service was going to WrestleMania as sort of a planning trip for the Pope's Mass for security, which on the surface, I feel like, A, doesn't that give you a pretty idea good idea that these are going to be pretty closely scaled events. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't they be going to a Lions game or whatever mm-hmm. or anything else? So th- I thought that was interesting in the first place. I tried doing a Freedom of Information Act request with the Secret Service. And I would say it was very weird because they, when I was doing status checks with them for months, like people would tell me, they would tell me, oh yeah, there are documents, they're working on it now. And then they sent me a no responsive documents letter. So I don't know if they found stuff that they felt was not – well, but no, but usually they say that. They say if it's responsive, but we can't send anything to you. So I don't know what to make of that. But I didn't end up getting anything back even though it took months and months. So I couldn't get anything from them either. But what we get to though is that – you know, like I said, I, I just don't think they would have been working the capacity on 2005 or whatever when they're trying to rent the building out desperately. So – the thing is, so on top of once we had a count for the floor, if you look at the um, if you look at the section by section, if you take out the club level and the suite level, and it was Max that kind of first noticed this, and then I kind of dug along with him, you and then you add in sixty three hundred, you get within a few hundred of seventy eight thousand five hundred. So, so, so the difference between. Just to make sure I'm following you, and hopefully everybody else is. Uh, the the difference between maybe like eighty eight thousand and seventy five eight hundred is maybe the dip, maybe just the club level seats that were not being counted, and the suite level seats, yeah, right? That wouldn't would have been like pre bought by various companies or whatever, you know, had mm-hmm. season tickets, etc. So once I saw that, I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense, and you know, we we've both heard from people that we know, wink wink that a lot of the time those are not on building settlements even now because like it's it's immaterial to how well the show is doing those were bought separately 
they're so, often just somebody owns that for a year or a season and they get to they, right they exactly to like events. i you know i went to SummerSlam 98 because my friend had a dad who my dad had a friend at cbs and they had like season garden tickets to everything so he had tickets to SummerSlam in a box just by way of the company box and he gave them to us so yeah like that that makes sense though if you really think about it you know what why would they be on the settlement of how many tickets we sold when those are already sold year round so i think that's what happened now why why would no one you know involved have noticed this why wouldn't Dane Bresloff have thought especially since it's his crowning achievement as a promoter that the number would have just didn't include those and that's what it was i don't know but the fact that the math all works out so neatly, I just, at this point, I'm not sure what other conclusion you can come to. And just about the um, the suites, when I got, and a number of other people got it too, we requested from the Tampa Sports Authority the some any records related to the attendance of WrestleMania, whatever number it was that just happened in 20, this year, well, just this past year, 2021. Yeah, 2021, yeah. And, and they did include uh, suite attendance in, in the records that they gave us. But was that on the, was that on everything we got, or was that only on their total? It was counts? a separate. I'm I'm looking for the PDF. It was on. Like, a was separate, it in the Ticketmaster stuff or anything like that? It was on a separate page. If I if I can find it, I will put it on the screen. Yes, yes. Okay, I remember now. Yes, you're right. It was. It we had it, but it was separate. Yes. Yeah. But uh, so you know, who knows what they were doing in 1987? Obviously, yeah. you know that they. Even if, even if, as we've seen, at least from ticket, ticket master systems do not look to have been particularly modernized from the records we have. Right. So that's where that is with that. I think that's enough for that, though. I mean, I guess we should move on now to the uh, World Wrestling Confederation on TBS, I guess. And good week to talk about that, actually, with the Dynamite moving to TBS. Yeah, let's here. I, ha- I, I am finding it if I can extract it. If I'm finding the okay. original email that is in a zip file and I will now extract it. To somewhere to a folder on my computer we should have it here you don't have a convenient google drive of this stuff like i do not not since i got this new computer so here's here's uh, what's on the screen is this is for so it's two-day wrestlemania of course this is saturday this looks like the the general stadium record and then we have separate pages we have a separate page called saturday suite audit i mean it looks like the same it cut i mean the, the font is the same it's a Ticketmaster yeah. audit report, and this is a Ticketmaster audit report. Um, and this is this is where we got the records to to add the suite seating in, and we have something similar for for Sunday. And what made this really complicated to put together is that there's single seating transactions for Saturday and Sunday separately, individually, and then there were, there was the two day if you bought yeah. two days in one purchase. But yeah, there's that. Anyway. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and we should also say the Ticketmaster stuff is not the same thing as the building settlement. Like we have a we have the building settlement for the last Orlando WrestleMania at least, and that doesn't break things down like yeah, that. My understanding so, is this is a document that comes from the vendor in this case, Ticketmaster. A building settlement is a is a record to show the the money exchange between the venue and WWE, for example. Pretty much, yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. So anyway, so I think that's enough about WrestleMania three, at least. <laughs> Tell me about Black Saturday. Okay, so you, I think, had always heard the same legend as me, 
and like my, you know, my memory's and go, not nearly through the newsletters though, and everything so. else. Go ahead. My memory is not nearly as good as yours, though. So I'm sure I, I read about this news in uh, the Observer when, in my study hall class my senior year. Uh, and I'm sure <laughs> I, I read about all, all of these events and the, um, you know, the John Molinaro books and things like that. But yeah, uh, legend has it the ratings were not good for WWF. Right. So WWF gets on TBS from Vince secretly buying majority of control of D- Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, and the lore was always thousands of angry phone calls to TBS demanding they wanted their Gordon Soley wrestling back and that the ratings just tanked and didn't really recover at all for wrestling on TBS until Mid-South was on for a limited run around the end of WWF on TBS and beginning of Crockett Promotions on TBS when Vince sold the time slots to Crockett. Um, so I think it was I was reading some of I was reading the relevant section of Tim Hornbaker's Death of the Territories. And as I'm doing that, I'm also looking at his uh, endnotes. And if it's an article that might be retrievable online, I'm pulling it up, et cetera, et cetera. And I noticed he, well, it was two things. I noticed he cited an Atlanta Journal-Constitution article, well, I think it was the Atlanta Constitution at the time, but still, uh, about Black Saturday, which I had not been able to find because newspapers.com's text recognition on that page was just kind of borked, just wasn't working. So without knowing the actual issue and page i couldn't find it good on tim for finding it however he did but it said there were only 83 calls which is a big difference so there was that but then also he cited an article from electronic media which i linked a the actual article in my thing but you can also find online um syndicated a couple places in newspapers.com and i think it's actually on the orlando orlando sentinel excuse me website from being syndicated there uh that talks about why they left TBS. And you know, there were two things about it that were interesting. One was that it was mostly coming from the WWF side. And in spite of that, surprise, surprise, had nothing to do with Ted Turner wanting to buy them and Vince saying no and what, all that bullshit. It was a disagreement over commercial time and what, what WWF could sell or not sell on their own. So that was interesting. But also I noticed that they were when they were talking about the February 85 rating, so the next to last month they were on TBS, I think they said they averaged a 5.3 rating. Um, quick note on that, though. Cable ratings always are a percentage of people with the station. So as we'll get to in a few minutes, too, like when you even as cable's quickly growing, what a, read, what a rating meant in terms of homes might not mean what it meant a year or two earlier. And uh, what was the other thing I was putting with that, though? They were weekly, it appears, too, as opposed to daily. Oh, that it was, oh right, yes, that's where I was going with this. That they only, We only had monthly and sometimes even just quarterly numbers back then. I think monthly was the best you would get. There were not, there were not any like widespread weekly cable ratings. And really, even in the trades, monthly. there wasn't that much coverage. Like There were no monthly charts or anything. If you got coverage in the trades or in regular newspapers, it was generally the TBS or another network that was dominating the charts sent out a press release with the numbers. It's a good thing that wasn't was back then. Interesting. And and it's <laughs> and it's it, a, a lot of the records that I see that Corey is is collecting. It's always we, you, you almost never see viewers measured. More so, you see homes. Yeah, and that's the other thing that I don't even know exactly when we started getting homes. I mean, excuse me, total viewers reliably. Like, especially if you go through Matwatch, you know, week by week and then later the monthly issues, month by month, it's always homes. 
And in the rare event that Steve Beverly gives a viewership count, it's usually something he's usually using the standard TV industry math of that era, which was the math for decades until streaming really started booming, that it all averages out to 2.4 viewers per home. Complicating that for wrestling is that the era where we do have viewers per home consistently, which is about like 1998 to 2005, based on the Observer and other sources, it's really closer to 1.4 to 1.7, at least for that era. Mm. So we don't have any kind of reliable viewership in that era, but we do have homes at least. So I anyway, would, I would guess too that the just the way that Nielsen measured viewers and homes changed over time. Maybe they just yeah, became of course more sophisticated in in how they were collecting data and, how, and and whether they were even counting viewers rather than homes. Right, exactly. So, um, sorry, just trying to adjust the camera a little bit. Um, so I was curious because of the 5.3, I had been doing, I had been digging around a little bit and I noticed, I had remembered that, wait a second, that sounds high. And I look at some old historical pieces that Dave had done and they said that Mid-South averaged a 5.3 across its 13 weeks on TBS and that it was the highest rated show on cable as a result. So I'm thinking, wait a second, if they're doing a 5.3 in their next to last month on TBS, then how do you reconcile that with the rate, the story of the ratings having tanked? So I decided to do something. I got a start on this before, but you know, more sources now, newspapers.com adding more sources. I started just digging to find as many reports about monthly averages as I could find. And generally, it's, you know, it's the top 10 shows on cable. And what I realized was, and I should, oh, I should share my methodology on this, because this is a very WrestleNomics-y thing. In, at least throughout the 80s, maybe later and also earlier, when TBS was reporting numbers to Nielsen, the shows were not World Championship Wrestling. There was not, you know, NWA or WCW main event, you know, not, uh, you know, World Championship Wrestling, Saturday edition, Sunday edition, not best of World Championship Wrestling, none of those names. You had World Championship Sports on Saturday evenings and Sunday Sports on Sunday evenings because they felt that calling it wrestling would be bad for getting ads, of course. Wrestling. So I realized because none of these none of these people are going to be digging into what these shows actually are. Why not search for, you know. Things like the term cable ratings or even just WTBS with championship sports. And I was able to reconstruct a lot. Um, Sometimes they had households. Sometimes they just had the ratings. But I realized I could dig around issues of broadcasting, later broadcasting cable and other magazines and get universe info. So we'd get more or less pretty close to what the households would have been. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was, especially after I did the color coding in the spreadsheet, was that the ratings may have gone down a bit, and even then, not quite immediately, because we don't have every month. That's the other thing. So there's a little bit of guesswork in here. You know, I didn't put in any months we didn't have numbers for, but still, to be able to chart the whole thing. But what it looks like happened was this. The ratings did tank over the first few months, um, but as cable expanded... And as the, well, actually, they did go up a little bit at first, probably from a combination of the old audience and the WWF audience. Then they start tanking when it becomes clear to the audience that the shows are mainly just the same stuff you can see in syndication on USA Network. And also, if you get the syndicated shows on WOR, because the New York WWF flagship station 
was available widely on cable as a superstation. So once you realize that this is not must-see TV, this is overlapping with the other shows I'm already watching, and also that it's not the style of wrestling people are used to on TBS, numbers go down, but then TBS adds a lot of homes quickly, and the WWF is getting more popular as you get towards early 85, and they kind of rebuilt the audience. Um, so I, I, like, I, I wonder, was this people mainly just getting ratings percentage points? And like, was this entirely a myth? Because even, even if you just go by the ratings points, it's still not exactly what we heard, you know? Yeah, so let me see if I understand. So Black Saturday is July 13th, 1984, if I remember right. That's my birthday. So I think it might be the seventeenth, but seventeen close enough. July eighty four, um, and yeah, mid July, and I've, I've got the the relevant image on the screen here, right? And, it, and July yes. does does a does a four point nine. So, so, oh, the fourteenth, you have it here. Um, and then the next, so so that's that's a mix mix of Georgia and WF in July, in in October. Right. The next, I think it was two Georgia Championship, three WWF. And, and so the next record that you have after July is October, where it does go down a lot, 4.0. Yes. But even in May, it, 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 I mean, in, it, back in 83, it's doing a 6.9, 6.8, 6.0. And then by May 84, it's doing a 4.6, 4.9. So it had dropped quite a bit. Well, that's the other thing, too. It was dropping before. Yeah, it was dropping before they even showed up. Mm-hmm. You know, there had been a bunch of things. Tommy Rich left. Road Warriors had been around for a while and should turn babyface and didn't. Like, you know, they were using a lot less named talent anyway in Georgia. Like, they had their own decline coming into this anyway. And and what's the timeline on when does... So it, it goes Georgia, WF, Mid-South, Jim Crockett, correct? Well, not exactly. So it's... You get first a Georgia championship with both the Saturday and Sunday evening shows, World Championship Wrestling and Best of World Championship Wrestling. WWF takes those over in mid-July. Um, end of July or beginning of August, and this didn't make the top 10, so we don't have the numbers, uh, Ole gets his new promotion championship for wrestling from Georgia on Saturday mornings. And then in, where do I, because I have this in this chart here somewhere, don't I? Or maybe not. Mid-South starts, I think, oh yeah, it's the first, the first Sunday of March. And I want to say it was 5.35 p.m. Sundays. And then there was a nature show between, for a half hour between that and the WWF Sunday show. And then it's uh, end of March, beginning of April, that everything shifts over to uh, Crockett. Okay. So that's how that works out. But mid, yeah, Mid-South didn't replace anything, neither did Championship Wrestling from Georgia. They supplemented, which made Vince angry because he thought he had an exclusive when he didn't. Whereas so, so- when Crockett made the deal, Crockett, in addition to buying out Vince's rights to the time slots, which is strange because he didn't buy Georgia Championship Wrestling. He just bought the rights to the time slots. Um, he also made a deal with Turner to get an exclusive. So Mid-South was an additional program yeah. besides that, that, that time slot that, that changed hands between Georgia, McMahon, and eventually Jim Crockett. Right. That was just an additional show. Yes. Okay. Um, and it did quite well. But again, we're seeing it's like it's not wasn't overwhelmingly doing well compared to what WWF had been doing. And then the other really interesting thing I noticed, though, was how much it drops from February, well, January and February, because they did nearly identical, to March of 85. 
And the reason for that that I posit, and it's the only thing I can think of based on where things had been trending, is that in March, presumably because Vince knew he was on his last legs with Turner and needed to do everything to keep the show on, at least to WrestleMania, he started doing the Saturday shows at the TBS studios on Techwood Drive. He did a studio wrestling show. And I'm guessing that drove the regular WWF audience off, as opposed to the Georgia wrestling type of audience. And that's why the numbers went down, even though it became a wholly original show. Because it was matches in the studio versus matches from the arena. Right. Yeah. Oh, and it didn't look like what people had become accustomed to WWF wrestling looking like over the previous year or so. Mm -hmm. So I think that turns people off. Again, I don't know how you account for that kind of drop with how the numbers had been trending up so far in 85 otherwise. And then even, you know, when it transitions to Crockett, at least, you know, unfortunately we only have rankings for most of 85, at least the first couple of months, Crockett was not able to regain any of the audience. You know, they were down slightly from the last month of WWF. So it's a much different narrative from what we've heard over the years. Uh, How much of that, like I said, was people just getting ratings points as opposed to also getting households? I don't know, but I think that's probably the best explanation. And then also, like, you know, you look at my notes in that right-hand column, it's very, like, it's very important to note just how much the universe for TBS grew over the course of two years or so. Yeah. We're We're going from... When, you know, on Black Saturday, in the month of Black Saturday, it's, what, 31 million homes. And then by late 85, it's 80, or 38 million homes. Um, right. And it, it had gone up to 34 by, uh, by March 85. And going back earlier for the couple stray numbers we have from uh, Matt Watch and I think maybe Brooke. What was the other source? I don't remember. But like they going back into early 83, it was 25 million. So there was a lot of growth there that if you're just going by uh, if you're just going by the ratings points, you are not getting the whole story because you know that total universe is growing so fast that it doesn't paint an accurate picture if you're just going by the ratings in the aggregate over the course of a year or two. So what what I remember reading a lot is that in this era, this is a lot of paid programming. That is the wrestling company paying the, the, the TV network or whomever uh, for the right to be in the slot. Very much to the opposite of what we see today among major wrestling companies getting TV rights. Um, but so Vince bought the time slot from from Georgia, which was... Well, he bought, he bought the promotion. He bought controlling chairs in the promotion. And that gave, gave him the time slots. Okay. And... Was he paying Turner in addition to that? I don't think so. Um, whether Croc, whether not Croc, whether Georgia Championship had a, I'm guessing it was if not a straight barter deal where they kept some of the ad time. Then actually, they probably kept the no. I know they would have kept local ad time because there were local promos that would air only in Atlanta that wouldn't air on the Superstation Asheville. Okay, but I. Excuse me. I don't know if it was just exact, just straight up free, or if there was also some ad time exchange between the two. But I don't think they were paying Turner. Now Vince was paying WOR, and he, I believe, he's still paying USA at least. In a, at least when he gets starts All American in late '83, he's paying USA. Mm-hmm. I don't know when that changes. Um, 
I should probably dig through the testimony I have from Vincent Linda from the USA Network uh, trial, because that might explain that. But I don't know if they're still paying USA by then. The fact that TNT got added, I got to think at this at, by, by the summer of 84, they're probably on a different deal. Um, but I'm not sure. But there's still, yeah, there's still a lot of that going on, even if not necessarily on TBS. So by the, it, it, it looks like, and in, in from rereading this before we, we, got, we got on the, uh, the call together, what was happening is we're building towards the first WrestleMania. There's a lot of money on the line uh, for, for WrestleMania 1 and all the money that's been invested in closed circuit to see if it's going to pay off. Um, so v- Vince wants, probably wants as much distribution as possible to sell WrestleMania 1. So people go to the cl- closed circuit. WrestleMania 1 happens. And eventually, not long after that, he sells it to, to, to Jim Crockett. But there's also, as you already mentioned, there's there's some problems between Vince and Turner related to um, Vince is, is putting, is not giving him exclusive content. There's other wrestling companies on the network, including Mid-South, right? And there's a dispute about what Vince can do with, with the time. That is, whether or not he can sell ads in that time slot. Is that all correct? Right. So, so the main, right. The main thing that's mentioned in that electronic media article is that the, the promotional time. So actually, yeah, this must be, yeah. So it would have been a straight barter. Um, now that I think about it. So the way the contract was, was that the promotion gets however many minutes of promotional time per show. Um, previously that had been, I guess, for the localized promos, but Vince felt that he could resell that as part of his ad network, which is also important to remember because now that he's really starting to push, you know, the World Wrestling Federation television network in syndic- you know, for syndication in trade magazines and stuff. Um, oh, I should find that that ad I tweeted talking about, you know, their young viewership and the dollar value compared to various mainstream sports from '84. And the demo? But does it mention the demo? It does mention the demo. Which demo? Easy to find that one. <sighs> I think I forget if they mention more than one or what, but they definitely they talk about the younger demographics, yes. And the thing to remember too with this era of syndication, and really as long as they were doing any kind of widespread syndication, you never saw ratings for individually superstars of wrestling, wrestling challenge, anything like that. You saw a combined number that also included like a percentage of the cable shows. At one point, it would include USWA, even though I don't think they were even technically distributing it because they wanted to get some of those big local USWA numbers. And then at one point, when Jerry Jarrett left and went to WCW, WCW was doing the same thing, and they got USWA later on. So the wrestling syndication numbers, you're kind of gaming it anyway. So Vince is like, well, I can add whatever this local TBS number is on the cable TBS number. Of course, I want to be able to sell network ads to package those in. And TBS was saying, no, promote, that's not what promotional time is. Promotional time is that you can use it to promote your events. And Vince didn't like that. And that's also how Jerry Briscoe remembers it happening. So it seems like that's what actually happened. Now, the, tra- the trade stuff didn't report on some of the other stuff we've heard. Like, the, I'm sure the switch to the studio setup was over the dispute, o- that there was a dispute over original programming, because... Why else would he suddenly switch to studio wrestling in the month before the first WrestleMania? But it seems like the straw that broke the camel's back was this dispute where 
I kind of get where both sides are coming from. And and are we talking about Vince? So so this wasn't a program that was otherwise airing commercial free, right? Was was Turner selling it was the ads the, that were in like the usual commercial break slots? Right. It was the dispute was over can Vince sell commercials to use in his allotted promotional time that Georgia Championship had just been using for local promos, pretty much. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Anything else to add about uh, Black I think Saturday? As Any, far as... Anything else surprising? Um, oh, there was something in here. There was something else, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, I think that's about it, though. Um, I th- either way, I think it's interesting just to chart it out like that. And one thing I've noticed, and you know, we talked about this on the Between the Sheets Patreon shows, especially. I always got the impression that the main newsletter writers were reading at least some of the TV trade magazines, at least from the late eighties through like throughout the Monday night war. But the more actual trade stuff I go through that has things that never show up in the newsletters, the less I'm convinced of that. And the more I kind of think that people were just faxing them certain articles, which is whatever. But it, I, I would think that if it was more relevant to the overall picture that you'd have people like, if they weren't before Dave Meltzer and others subscribing to like the, you know, multi-channel news and whatever today. Um, but yeah, I don't, it doesn't feel like they were then because there's so much stuff that they just miss out. I mean, which I forget which trade it was, but for example, when we did those uh, ECW on TNN shows on the Between the Sheets Patreon, one thing I found was one of the trades had during the WWF USA Network lawsuit, the trial, a timeline of what had come out in the evidence of as far as, the negotiations and everything between WWF and TNN and USA and all that. And it showed that WWF was talking to Viacom like right after ECW on TNN was announced. And that never shows up in the newsletters. And there's plenty of other stuff like that. So I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. And it means there is a lot to mine in this stuff and archives. And, you know, and again, we don't have complete digital archives of everything. There's more stuff. I'm sure if I went to a library that had gaps that we could find, but, those wouldn't be searchable. So. Yeah, and it's a less less digital age, even the early two thousands. 
I, I wonder if there's, are there things that I'm missing out on right now? Because I'm not like subscribing to the Sports Business Journal or something. Well, Dave subscribes to Sports Business Journal at least. So I would hope that if there's anything in there, he would aggregate it at least. But um, trying to think what else is there. Because I feel like, I feel like whatever, like whatever note is in multi-channel news and stuff tends to show up on their website these days. And it doesn't feel like there's that much original reporting, at least relevant to wrestling in a lot of those these days. It seems, it seems like, yeah, most of that stuff that's of note shows up in Sports Business Journal. And, and just one more thing on this topic. So Vince, at least during the Monday Night Wars, says that, you know, part, part of the reason why, uh, why, why Ted Turner is going after him I am a victim. It's because he wants to he wants to buy <laughs> WF and and Vince turned him down. Of course he wants to acquire yes. everything. Um that he claims that, that this happened at this time. Yes. Which that, there's th- no reason to believe any of that, I don't think. <laughs> I, I don't think there's even any reason to believe that the the Vince, I'm in the wrestling business phone call happened in eighty. You, you don't think either. that happened? Uh, I, I do think I do think Ted, Ted Turner probably did call Vince McMahon when he yeah. bought Crockett. I do think that that's realistic enough. I'm not sure. I, I don't think the call happened remotely like Vince describes it. If it actually happened, though, that that that, that shatters a lot of my uh, the folklore of of, uh, of of everything that I that I believe. That's a shame. Also, the best part too is as Meltzer describes it. At least Vince was so pissed off when Turner bought Crockett out because Vince felt like this is unfair. I won. They were going out of business because of me, and now they're not. They got bought by someone with more money than me. That's unfair. Yeah, it's uh, yes. Somebody came along and put a bunch of money into it, and yeah, and then now there's new competition. Sounds familiar. Yeah, weird. <laughs> now, so yeah, that's it. At least as far as that. Okay, so what else do we have here to go? Wrestler over pay and immigration. One one of the things uh, that people ask me about, and that I I'm always like, yeah, I have no data. I have no idea. Um, is and I know you, you you've found some records related to this. Chris Harrington has found some records related to this. That um, just what people are getting paid. And most of this information is kind of in a prior era, but um, but you've been finding a lot of records. Uh, as it turns out, when when people pass away, if they are uh, if they worked in the in the U.S., let me know if I'm getting this right. If they worked in the U.S. but they were not born in the U.S., there's there are. Uh, records requests that you can do through the immigration office so you can get it through what's now u.s uh, citizenship and immigration services is what it is now but they have all the old records from the ins and whatever other predecessors there might be Mm -hmm. and what it's called is technically it's called the alien file is what you're asking eventually i figured that i found that out and once you know that you just it's easy to do the foia request you just say i'm asking for the alien file of this person this is when they were born. This is when they died. Here's proof of death. And like, there's other neat stuff you can find in those, you know, sometimes like who wrote a recommendation letter for this person to get a visa. But the most on point stuff here is you will get tax records and other stuff. Um, you know, I mentioned it in passing in the article I did about them trying to deport Pat Patterson for being gay that I did for Mel Magazine that, you know, there is stuff, there's a, there's a tax return, I think from, 71 or thereabouts when he was trying to get his green card that's in there but also descriptions of things he said about his pay and interviews that seemed accurate with them and you know that's it's useful to figure out what people made which is really if you run it through the inflation calculator 
a lot more than you might think wrestlers were making in territories back in the day. Um, and also keep in mind, you know, you know, in some territories, even if they're declaring all of their actual paychecks and stuff, like in Tennessee, these guys probably aren't declaring shit on their, you know, their gimmick money on the, on their pictures and stuff. But so in a lot of cases, it's probably higher anyway, mm-hmm. but you can find tax returns and stuff. And that's one of the reasons I request them. You know, one, one of the ones I found more interesting that I got was when I did the uh, request for Chris Adams file, it had all of his 1099 misks for, uh, for 1984. And he made, I want to say, I want to say it was like 90 grand from world class, but also including his dates outside for mid South and stuff. He made about a hundred grand in 1984 money. And this is as the, what do you want to say? Like the n- number, I mean, number three, or at least the top non-Von Eric baby face in Von Eric country would maybe be the better way to put it at a time where they're still pretty hot, but things are a little declining a little because of David Von Eric's death. But still, and I don't know how much they did as far as picture sales and stuff in that era, but that's a dude making a very comfortable, at, at worst, upper middle class living, but realistically higher, especially in the era, working in this short trip but big city territory, you know, and arguably isn't even his peak as a earner in that territory because, at least from card position, he was, you know, he was pushed heavier as a heel, and he's only a heel for the last few months of the year. So that's really interesting. And then, but you don't always get stuff like that. And as I learned this week, because I did one for Roddy Piper, got it back. Oh, so I'm getting, I get this. I, I log into my account on their FOIA portal and I see, oh, my Roddy Piper one came back and I download the PDF. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm scrolling through it. 1985 tax return. If there's a tax return you want for Roddy Piper, that's probably the one, right? And most of it was redacted. And this is the first time this happened, as it turns out, because his wife was mentioned in some form. Because this is what the FOIA officer explained to me. Even if it's not a joint return, it's considered joint for privacy purposes for how they handle FOIA requests, which means they redacted basically everything. But I guess they included it to show still he include this his ta- 1985 tax return was used for whatever purpose. So they felt they had to include it instead of just not instead of just not including the pages at all. Because but he was that, that was a disappointment. <laughs> because he was married to someone, they had to redact everything. No, because his wife. It, I don't think it was necessarily a joint return, or maybe at least certain parts of it were not joint, like the individual state stuff he was doing mm-hmm. for states he wrestled in but didn't live in. But his wife was mentioned enough for them to be considered a joint return for, if not necessarily tax purposes, then for privacy purposes. Mm-hmm. So because his wife is alive and I don't have a privacy waiver for her, I can't get that. So if she were to pass away or I would, for some reason, was to strike up a relationship with Kitty Toombs and get her to sign a privacy waiver, then I'm not getting that. Um. And, and any others interesting? I, I hear chatter about Dynamite Kid and John Tenta. Okay. Uh, Dynamite and Davy Boy, because we have both of those now. I just got Dynamite. Uh, Chris Harrington years ago had gotten Davy. They both had, uh, what was the number? They, it was because they they're, both of their visas were being re-upped. And let's see. I'll pull up Dynamite since that's the shorter one, so it should be easier to find. Um, 
I should probably just send you a link so you can display it, but whatever. Uh, give me a second. And, uh, kind of find his on WWF letterhead. Okay. Yeah, it's a letter from James Troy, Vice President Titan Sports and World Wrestling Federation, a.k.a. the guy that Vince hired to be an executive because he had been a hockey goon who became the coach of the team at Vince's Cape Cod Coliseum, and Vince liked having a tough guy around him. And that says... Uh, Mr. Billington's gross annual salary is in excess of $270,000. Astor's projected 1987 salary based on salary generated during the first half of 1987. So he made 135000 in the first half of 87. 135000 in 1987. That's yes. dynamite. Dynamite kid. Yeah. Not yes, and same for David Boy. The, the letter for David okay. Boy from the same time says the same thing. Okay. So that's, that's in, in 87, that's how much in today's money? Okay, let's see. So inflation calculator. And I like to use the CPI inflation calculator on what is data.bls.gov because that actually lets you go down to the month, mm. which the other inflation calculators don't. So if we say, let's go with June. You tell me what you get. I we'll, we'll compare. Let's see. Okay, so you want to go with 300,000 or the total or with the half year, the extrapolation or the half year total? You said 135000 for for a year. Right, is so. what they're extrapolating from. Unless they're, you know what, let's do the 270 because they could be weighting it based on WrestleMania, you know? Okay. Let's say 270. Let's take the total income. And something I've run into lately, which I really need to figure out how to get it to stop doing this, it tries to autofill. I have to copy and paste. Because <laughs> it'll try to autofill based on stuff I put in it before. There needs to be a way to keep stuff from doing autofill on sites like this i don't know how though okay so, so if we do that through between, between the most recent they have is november 2021 so that is six hundred sixty one thousand one hundred ninety seven dollars and 89 cents yeah it's over half a million in a year it's pretty good yeah. so somewhere but, but but it could be just 135 for the year right well, 100 or 85 135 for the half year yes which, but, oh for the half year still a lot of money if that's what we're going by okay but the, and that's why you said two seventy. So it would be for no. It says it says two seventy in the letter, but that it also is based on his first six months. Okay, that is a projection. That's a lot of money. So the question is, yeah, I mean, I, that's why I wouldn't want to do the one thirty five because if they're waiting it because WrestleMania would be the single biggest check he gets all year, it's possible that the first half is more than one thirty five. Mm -hmm. So that's why I would just go with the two seventy. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. But I mean, even other stuff like. You know, I'll get some stuff now that they have it all organized. I have a finding aid. And with COVID, they'll just email stuff to you. You know, the Jack Pfeffer collection at Notre Dame, uh, they have all sorts of stuff about individual wrestlers, about stuff he promoted. You know, Jack Pfeffer, old-timey promoter and booker, did a lot of weird stuff. You know, knockoff wrestlers, Bruno San Martino, Lucas, etc. But he had his hands in tons of stuff. And a ton of what we know about the real wrestling history from basically like the 30s through the 60s comes from this collection. And you'll see stuff like, I need to get more of like, there are Jackie Fargo notebooks that have his payoffs for every single date he worked in a given year. But it also has stuff like a letter that uh, Ron Dupree wrote him. And Ron Dupree, uh, one half of the Dupree brothers with the future Chris Colt, who at one point was also his uh, partner slash lover slash whatever, you know, common law husband, whatever you want to say, especially in the context of the time. And in like 1966, they're working in the Kingsport territory, which is, I believe, four nights a week, plus some spot shows, all within like 50 miles of where you'd be living. 
And as main eventers there, and they thought they should be making more money, they were each making like the equivalent of adjusted for inflation, like 90 grand in this short trip territory where they are not, you know, having to stay in hotels and stuff. So if you were a main event wrestler in the territory era, you were making excellent money, pretty much. Well, it lines up with a lot of stories that you hear about people who have become wrestlers, ended up becoming wrestlers who were playing football and they heard from Wahoo or whoever that you can make a lot more money doing wrestling and they, they decided to become wrestlers, right? Right, for pre-free agency and all sorts of stuff before NFL salaries started going up a lot. But they were, NFL salaries were fairly low for a long time, even in like, you know, very celebrated eras of football. So, anything else on uh, immigration? Uh, I, I, the last few I did came back very quickly, so I put like a dozen through the other day. I think they're starting with like three of them, but I'm curious to see what comes up. It's also just interesting to see sometimes just how random some of it is. Like, last month I got one back for Jumbo Saruta. It was like 200 pages, and it was all from when... He tried at first unsuccessfully. I don't even have it in there, but later on, you know, obviously successfully at the end of his life, he was working as like a professor at a university in Oregon teaching, I forget exactly what it was, but some kind of physical thing. And it was like 200 pages all from that. And you have these very like carefully filed letters signed by Mitsuhara Masawa of all Japan being like, here we certify that Jumbo Saruta held these titles like even listing all of his title defenses and stuff and every magazine award he won. It's, 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 it's just fascinating to go through some of this stuff sometimes, you know, like Jumbo and also was like, a professor, like a physical education professor or something like that. I, I, I didn't want to use the term physical education. Cause I feel like that would be wrong. Even if it's the wording they were using, but yeah. yeah. And, uh, they have, for some reason it's all from that. They don't have anything from any of his prior, you know, U S trips. Which is, you know, right. a little disappointing. But it, it, the other thing I guess I'll mention with that, and then we can, I guess, finish up, because I don't think there's really much else we want to talk about. Oh, maybe a little bit of WCW and ECW briefly. But uh, a lot of the times you'll have a letter from the promoter that's trying to get the visa saying this person will make this much or this will be the minimum they make plus a percentage of the gate. And I feel like it's hard to know how much of that is for show and how much is a real number. Sometimes that's all you get, and I don't know how to extrapolate from that because, like, uh, oh, who was it? There was someone I got that, oh, it was Waldo Von Erich, I think, that we had, like, what Vince McMahon Sr. was sending for him. And then I had a year or two later, like, Killer Kowalski for AWA. It was Killer Kowalski or Mad Dog Rashawn, one of the others. And the amount they were saying for them was, like, half, but it's in one of the other big money territories. Like, I, I don't know if that stuff's accurate. Like, it's better to get tax records, actual pay records, people actually saying we certified that they're making this much, you know, total stuff like that. So, And this still has to be done today, if people are wondering, uh, to get visas for wrestlers today. Oh, yeah. Oh, so it's such a weird process. I did it. If people want to know more, I did an article for Mel Magazine a few years ago that really outlines it. It shows off some of the letters. Lance Storm gave me some of the ones he had from him, his own stuff, and I used some of the ones I had from some of these files, like the Chris Benoit one, but like they are very uh, like title histories and awards and stuff like that. Like that's important to them. Being ranked like, in the PWI 500, being mentioned in magazines. Yes. Power Slam 50 back in the day. Yeah. Like all that stuff is really important to the visas. Now, like I, 
actually, I still haven't done anything with this. I really should do a post about it. Like I had done a request for like, do you have anything about how you're choosing like for which type of, what type of determinations you make for wrestlers or which visas they should be getting. And they sent me back some emails. One did say that these days they basically green light every application WWE sets them, yeah. uh, which was interesting to see someone admit. But still, like it's always this same type of stuff, you know, magazine clippings, title histories, awards. You know, sometimes the letters mentioning like uh, X, you know, won this award or, you know, Chris Benoit is in the four horsemen and that makes him one of the, makes him the top ranked part of the top ranked tag team in the world. Like so much is bullshit, but it's, it's what they accept. And it's also why, and I don't like to talk about people's immigration stuff unless it's way in the past or they've talked about it. And in this case, the person talked about it, the whole thing with Ben Carter, you know, people who haven't read the interviews he did right around when he signed with WWE they don't understand why he signed with WWE and credit to him for being fairly open about this too. Um, I'm sure he decided to be open about it once he had a visa or, well, no, he didn't have a visa, but once he knew where things were going at least or work visa, I should say, he was, I mean, he kind of admitted it overstaying a student visa, his student visa from college because he was here to, as a soccer player. I forget what school he went to. I, I think he was going training as a wrestler on, while under the student visa, which seems kosher. But if technically the work you're doing is a, that you've been doing that's gotten you this buzz as an indie wrestler is working illegally on your student visa, how can you use that to get a work visa? So it became clear because of NXT UK, his one real option was to sign with them, go back home, be with his family. And then once his contract is up, he has stuff he can use to get a U.S. for Earth visa, whether with WWE or if he wants to go somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. I, do you remember there's I'm, I'm looking at it now to see if there's anything. It looks like there's some some documents out here for this. You remember this uh, from what is the state of January 2021? So about a year oh, ago. Oh, that lawsuit. Okay. So it's it's titled <sighs> World, World Wrestling Entertainment Inc. v. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which we just put. Yes. Okay. So I need to check back to what they told me when I called the courthouse, because it was something to the fact, because most of this, just about everything that showed what the hell this was about was sealed. Well, no, excuse me, not sealed. Not it. So it's not sealed. It's not accessible on PACER, which is the federal court's website. The way it was explained to me that I forget exactly why it's not sealed but this type of case, they don't put online. And I believe if, ugh, did I was, it what I, was it that I was able to order it from them? Or, no, they were saying they were doing it for free. I'm trying to remember why I didn't ask for it. I need, I need to just check, honestly, tomorrow, I should just check with them, see what this is about. They clearly sued over some issue they were having with getting visas processed. Obviously, why else would they sue? But the, the records are there and can be accessed, but I forget exactly what they said I had to do. So I'll probably, I should just call the clerk tomorrow. But yeah, there was some lawsuit last year that was quickly resolved where they were clearly having some kind of issue getting visas put through. I would and think. Gen- generally, as you kind of mentioned, WWE has a pretty easy time, at least relative to say AEW, which we know have had some some challenges getting uh, work visas in the past. Yeah, I mean, because they're newer and I mean, we could we could get in. I mean, there's, there's stuff in there that's kind of like, it, of those emails I have, they're that are partially redacted, but based on what they did redact and didn't redact, it's clear what they're talking about. Like certain promotions that maybe didn't know how to ask 
Uh, plus, you know, we saw st- it's clearly easier for some companies or some companies located certain places. Like, you know, remember when Josh Alexander, uh, his ban was over, AAW in Chicago sponsored a work visa application for him and it didn't go through. But Impact signs him and boom, they're able to get him a work visa. I don't know if it helps that they're a Canadian company now or whatever, but they were able to get that through pretty easily. I think people suspect that the reason Mike Bailey signed with them is also that coming off of his ban, it's probably easier for them to get him a visa than other companies would. So there are a lot of factors in there, including probably times where companies may or may not have flexed with people's visas, but we should probably leave it at that. Okay. Anything else to add? As far as that, no. Um, I guess to turn this into a plug or whatever, as we finish yeah. up, we could talk real quick about some of the ECW and WCW stuff that uh, myself and Chris Zellner found out doing the uh, ECW on TNN and Death of ECW and Sale of WCW podcasts on our Patreon for Between the Sheets. Um, two things really here, I guess, that would be the main things to discuss. One, that... It, it turned out that in early 1999, Paul Heyman signed over control of the business side of ECW to a separate management group and kayfabe everyone about it. Yes, there's some very educational uh, po- podcasts on the, uh, the Between the Sheets Patreon about uh, ECW and, uh, and just what was going down at the very end of, of WCW. It's great stuff. Yes, and also, yes, it would be, the main things would be that and then also, so that, and that's actually on the first part of ECW on TNN, which we do have available for free if people want to hear it on the main feed. But then also with WCW, and this is in the second part of the uh, sale of WCW stuff, between what's in the newsletters, what's in the trade magazines, not just about WCW, but about everything going on at Turner, Time Warner in general, and also some of what Guy Evans reported in his Nitro book, it became clear that uh, Jamie Kellner was probably hung out to dry as far as being put in a position where he would either look bad selling WCW to fusion uh, media ventures under conditions that were not favorable to Turner or by making Jamie Kellner have to be the one that canceled the long running wrestling shows by basically putting a poison pill in the contract of contractual terms that no same person would agree to because he was the one who, so this Steve Heyer guy was the one negotiating the deal. And then suddenly he left right before everything blew up. And then there were these trade articles talking about how, he had told people he wanted to, quote-unquote, kill Jamie Kellner professionally. So let's review. We have, we have <laughs> the guy who said he wanted to, quote-unquote, kill Jamie Kellner's career and then left was the one negotiating the sale most of the time. The reason Kellner cancels the shows is because, and this actually did come out in the trades later and no one noticed, uh, that Fusions had asked for a term where even if WCW ceased to exist or they didn't own them anymore, they would still control the time slots. I forget for how many years, but it was a long time, at least like a decade. And then like once Steve Heyer's gone and it goes to Jamie Kellner, Jamie goes like, what the hell? This is ridiculous. Screw this. I'm just canceling the wrestling shows. Mm -hmm. And that's where everything went. And when you know that, I don't think you can really blame Jamie Kellner that much. Um, You know, there's the story Dave Meltzer tells about how when Jamie Kellner becomes head of the Turner Networks, Jim Barnett calls him and said, and he tells Jim about Jim. It's like, oh no, Jamie Kellner hates wrestling. (laughs) However, knowing all the connections that uh, Jim Barnett had within the Turner organization, who's to say he wasn't buddies with Steve Fire? So so why did Jamie Kellner, he canceled the time slots. 
No, he canceled the wrestling shows, which made it there be no point for Fusion to buy the company. And we're talking about the Nitro and Thunder time slots. Nitro and Thunder, although Thunder was possibly, was seemingly being canceled anyway with Nitro moving to TBS. But before all that happened, but he canceled, he canceled the wrestling shows because Steve Heyer, presumably, because he was the one negotiating the deal, knowing that it would look bad for Kellner either way, was happy to put this ridiculously unfavorable term in the contract that Fusion would control the time slots even if there was no more WCW or they didn't own WCW. So he put Jamie Kellner in a, in a situation where he would have to cancel. He would either, he would either look like or have to he was responsible for this terrible deal, yes, or by, not, by this happening under his nose, or he would look bad and become this villain by this, being the guy who canceled it. And what, what's Steve Heyer's issue with Jamie Kellner? What's their heat? I forget exactly, because I'd have to pull up the article, because it was one Chris found as we were recording, so it's not in my notes. But it was just, you know, whatever corporate bullshit stuff. Steve Heyer had been there for years, and I guess after the Turner Time Warner merger, did not like Jamie Kellner being made head of Turner Networks when he was, when he was coming from running the WB. And decided to screw that guy and decided to try to screw him on his way out. And if this doesn't happen, then Jamie Kellner... There's probably happen. a much greater chance that Fusion makes some kind of deal, although who knows with that because things were changing because they had not gotten a good look at the WCW books at first. But I don't, I don't think at this point that he cancels the shows otherwise. And then that means Fusion ends up getting a, a time slot on TBS, maybe. Right, right. I don't... I, you know, obviously, there's all the speculation about uh, Brad Siegel, who was the Turner executive in charge of WCW at the time, and how Stuart Schneider, previously a TBS executive, was running, was I think president of WWF Entertainment at the time, and how they had been fraternity brothers on t- and had worked together, I think, other places, and that I'm sure that was a factor. And it seems like Brad Siegel always wanted it sold to Vince because that was another thing too that just. Was in the was in trades and stuff that barely got talked about. Brad Siegel was openly talking about during the fusion talks how even after the talk or initial talks for WWF to buy WCW fell apart because uh, Viacom wouldn't waive exclusivity on WWF owned shows without a huge financial penalty. Uh, he stayed in contact with Vince the whole time, so I think and he always was, wanted to go to Vince. But th- that would have been a scenario. I think where, they can't. Sorry, that w- that would have been a scenario where WWF. Would have had a program on Turner, probably TBS, right? That's that's where that's they now. would have bought WCW, run WCW as a separate thing, and inherited the at least initially the TBS and TNT time slots. Okay. So there are other factors in play, but I think at least from Jamie Kellner's perspective, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think this happens without Steve Heyer poisoning the fusion team. Okay. I, I I listened to both of those episodes, the, the one on the death of WCW that you guys did, and, and the one on uh, ECW in the dying days on, on TNN, and I, I it's one of those situations where as I'm listening, I'm like I I need to like listen to that and listen to this a few times, you know, and just because there's so much information. That you yes. <laughs> Which thank you, but yes, that's a Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets is the Patreon. You can uh, follow follow the show on Twitter at BT Sheets Pod, uh, Between the Sheets Pod.com for the you know, full archive of the shows, the podcast feed you can find anywhere for between the sheets. Although I am in the process of the holiday has gotten in the way of it a little because uh, getting the feed changed to where I don't have a feed burner feed in the middle anymore. Cause 
that was crashing with more than 100 episodes, but that was a feed burner issue. So to get everything switched over to the Red Circle feed and have the Red Circle, the cap on the Red Circle feed removed, so we can have the full archive in the actual RSS feed. I know there are others that, that have uh, put the Between the Sheets episodes in chronological order. I, I, I shared a, a, sheet, a, a spreadsheet that I did with you once, right? Yes. Where I put them in chronological yes. order. I have a Python script that will do that automatically. I haven't, haven't ran it. Oh, wow. But, uh, yeah, sorry. You've gotten really good at Python. We're getting in there. It's, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm doing, I'm, you know, just by virtue of like Googling all the time to figure out how to do things. There are clearly people who are really good at it, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's very, very valuable. It's, it's uh, making Russellomics super powered in many ways. Yeah. Yes. All right. So should we, did, did we go too long for you to append this to the regular show? We're getting there. <laughs> well, let, well, I think we're just about done. So let's, uh, once you truncate silences and stuff, I think we'll be okay. So, okay. Any other final plugs? Uh, I mean, just the main plugs then, you know, follow me on Twitter at David Bix, uh, the uh, Substack babyfacevheal.com. I may be changing the name soon to maybe make it a little less specific. Um, we'll see about that. Which the thing is, though, if you change the name on Substack, if, well, if you change the URL at least, they only give you one shot where it preserves all the links working. You can do it on limited times where it breaks the links, but if you want to preserve the links, you can only do it once. So you have to make sure you know what you're you you're pretty sure about whatever name change you're doing to uh, to do it the right way. But yeah, babyfacevheal.com uh, has all that. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what would be the best way to do you know stuff that would be premium and at least until I finally launch the podcast that I have episodes logged recorded for already. But um, either way, it's a good if you want to at least support me being able to do more of this stuff and not have to rely on constantly pitching stories to people that also especially might be too granular for me to pitch anywhere then please subscribe at least do the email subscription and then if you do the paid subscription please do that as well and that is babyfacevheal.substack v- and yeah babyface versus vsheal.com works too i don't think i did babyface vrsusheal.com but babyface basically babyfacevheal.com or babyface versus heal.com should work Alrighty, thanks thanks again to bix for joining us and uh, this may or may not end up on, on the audio version of the podcast that will come out it pretty better. soon. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Usually I got the podcast out by now. It's, it's 6, 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, yeah, I will be back on Thursday for live TV Variants Talk right here on the Russellomics YouTube channel. We'll see everybody then. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotion promotional offer not available in washington dc at parker our purpose is simple We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. 
by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.